What does school choice look like? A little while ago on The Curious Task, I spoke with Paige McPherson. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Paige McPherson. Paige is Associate Director of Education Policy for the Fraser Institute. For many years, Paige has contributed policy analysis and commentary to major media outlets and research organizations across Canada, focusing on education policy, fiscal policy, and government accountability. Prior to joining the Fraser Institute, Paige was Alberta Director and Atlantic Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, a TV host and politics reporter, and provided communications for the Atlantic Institute for Market Studies, where she founded a post-secondary student outreach program. Paige's work has taken her from coast to coast to coast, and she holds a Master of Public Policy from the University of Calgary School of Public Policy and a BA from Dalhousie University. Paige, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you on. So Paige, we base each episode on a question and go wherever the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, what does school choice look like? And a lot of our conversation is going to switch back and forth between general concepts, and then we're going to get into specific examples from Canada to illustrate those concepts. But I think a, a good place to start is just to establish some basic points and, and go from there. So right off the bat, at the highest level and in a general sense, before we get into policy or what specific provinces are doing or anything like that, what do you mean when you say you're a proponent of school choice? What does a world of school choice look like in like the most basic sense? So the most basic sense would be just the premise that parents and students, families could choose where they go to school, what type of school they attend, regardless of where they live. So currently, you know, there are policies that constrain um, for a variety of reasons that we'll get into where students can actually attend school and what type of school they can attend. Um, but the basic premise of school choice would be to completely free that up and uh, and allow families to one extent or another choose what school they attend for how long, um, regardless of where they live or what their income is. Right. And, and this might be a little tricky because exactly as you said, we'll get into specifics later. But is it possible for you at like a general level to also describe how parents are limited? And again, I'll say to our listeners, I know, you know, especially in Canada, every province, you know, there's different you know, nuances here, but is it just basically the idea that most people are attending sort of publicly funded schools and they're, they're, you know, stuck in a specific geographic location that they like, can you just like give us a general sense of the sort of typical way parents is have limited choice or at least more limited than like, for instance, someone you would prefer? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the, the the most basic reason really is finances. So of course, parents are taxpayers. Everybody in Canada, to some extent, is a taxpayer. Um, we pay taxes, which go toward funding government programs. One of which is government schooling. Um, which you know, when I'm when I say government schools, I'm, I'm referring to what are typically known as public schools, um, but are operated, funded by the government and operated, run by the government um, as well. And um, so we already have that money coming out of parents' pockets, going towards this system and providing schools that, you know, it's sort of a misnomer, clearly a misnomer to say that these schools are free because they actually are quite expensive and they are in fact funded by taxpayers. Um, But parents can send their children to these schools without paying additional tuition costs. 
Um, and because of this money that, you know, is already coming out of their pocket to fund this school system, a lot of parents and, and other things that the government provides, a lot of parents do not have additional income um, to spend on a school that charges tuition. So there's a financial barrier there. Some might say, oh, I'd love to send my kid to a Montessori school or a Waldorf school or whatever kind of independent school um, fits with their um, outlook or their child's unique learning needs um, or behavioral needs, whatever it might be. But sadly, I just don't have that additional money in my pocket to be able to do so. So there's that financial barrier there for families. That's one of uh, the major reasons. Um, and certainly from a policy perspective um, is, is one of the things that that we look into in terms of the barriers to, to choosing your school. But there's also things like catchment areas. Um, so, you know, I, I, anybody who's looked for a home in the province of Ontario, for example, knows that um, real estate listings will often say, oh, this is in an excellent school district and it'll list the school. Um, and in, in some parts of Canada, um, to a, a greater or lesser degree, you're bound by catchment area, meaning that your, your child actually has to attend um, not only a government-funded public school because you can't afford another option, um, but your local public school, whatever school um, is in your area, because you are, are actually bound by that geographical area. Um, there are exceptions to that, but that's typically uh, how kids go to school. They go to their local government-funded public school um, and for financial reasons or policy reasons such as catchment area restricting movement of kids to go to other areas, um, they are actually um, pushed to go into that school. And those are the two main reasons why. Right. And not only are these schools, as you're saying, and districts and so on, government-funded, but they're also effectively government-run. Like there's a whole school board tier to this and so on, right? Yeah, absolutely. So one arm of government or another, it's a little bit different um, in different provinces. Um, but yeah, typically you've got um, school boards um, that are, are involved in the management, um, but the provincial government um, is involved in curriculum development, um, making those kinds of overarching administrative bureaucratic decisions about schools. Um, and, and what you, you have as a result is, is not a lot of difference between um, one school to the next, whether you're in Thunder Bay or you're in Toronto, um, you're working with the same curriculum and um, it's kind of a one size fits all system. The schools are, are, are pretty much the same from one place to another in any given province. And there's a lot of similarities between um, government schools from province to province as well. So you don't get that kind of local flexibility. Um, you know, we see that with other government programs uh, as well, healthcare, whatever it might be. Um, but the governments do run and they operate these schools and they also fund them. Right. And and as you said, we will get into more specifics about that uh, later, but I think that that was a great sort of general overview of what's happening as far as how these schools are, are run so far. So connecting that back up to what you sort of defined at the most basic level as school choice, just the idea that people have more options and so on and so forth to actually choose where their uh, children are educated and so on. Can you describe a little further then, now that we have in the back of our heads, the concept of school choice and also you established what schooling, if you will, looks like, at least in Canada, generally, what does a market for schools then look like? Like, what do you like, how do we actually take the concept of school choice and then say, okay, is it just a matter of allowing more schools to open up? Like, like what's really going on there in your mind? How do we actually get school choice from a concept to actually a reality in terms of the options that people can have? 
Well, I think that, you know, the, the first step, um, not even getting into, you know, the, the variety of different policy mechanisms that could lead to greater school choice for families. Um, but the first step is asking, you know, why would we want school choice in the first place? Um, and because in Canada and, you know, in, in many developed countries, it's sort of a default um, to say, oh, I'm going to go to um, my local government school. Um, and a lot of people don't think twice about it. It's not really, um, I mean, the vast majority of, of students in Canada are educated at their local government school, um, government public school. So um, it's kind of the, the norm. And, and so the question is, well, why would we want school choice in the first place? And, and I think that, you know, it's important to just kind of broaden our, our minds and think a little bit about, well, what other areas of our life do we have so little choice um, than our schools? Um, because think about even, um, I'll, I'll give you the example of a grocery store. Um, and, and I give this example because I have some particular dietary needs. I'm allergic to corn. Corn is in like absolutely everything. And it's very difficult for me to find foods um, that my body does not have a reaction to. I can't help it. Um, there's nothing that I did to choose this allergy. It just happens to be how my body works. Uh, however, I don't live uh, in a neighborhood that has a kind of bougie organic grocery store, even though a lot of the things that I need to buy for myself to eat are um, from a bougie organic grocery store, sadly, for my pocketbook. That's just where my allergies uh, have led me to. Um, for one, I can't afford to live in a neighborhood that has a bougie organic grocery store, but we also chose where we live in our neighborhood um, because <clears throat> we like it. Her neighborhood is unpretentious. There's regular people, you know, pretty big yards. It's a little bit suburban. It's a little bit country. It really fits our preferences in terms of where we uh, we live. Um, but it's it's also my preference and my need, as I said, to primarily shop at a grocery store where I can find things that I'm not allergic to. So my my local grocery store does offer some things I can eat, but it doesn't offer all things I can eat. Uh, but fortunately, my government, um, although it does tell me a lot of what I can and cannot do, does not limit where I can buy my groceries. And, and there's no local government grocery store that I'm having to take my allotted grocery budget and pay to in advance, um, forcing me effectively to shop there because I then wouldn't have any leftover money to go to the other grocery store that actually fits my needs a lot better. Um, instead, in reality, I earn my money and of course, I pay taxes quite a bit, but I, I use the money that I keep <clears throat> to pay for the groceries, whatever grocery store I choose. doesn't matter where I live. Uh, but the same is not true for my local uh, government public school. Um, you know, I think everybody can kind of put themselves back in the context of remembering back to when they were in grade school. They might not have learned the same way as everybody in their class. They might not have behaved the same way as everybody in their class. They probably were better in some subjects and some of their friends were better in other subjects. Um, and, and some kids probably loved school. Others probably didn't like school so much. Um, because school is not the same for every child. Um, and, and even if you look at different interests, some people probably liked the, the drama club, some people liked the basketball team, whatever it was. Um, now, I think that this is particularly important on the academic side, but there are a whole bunch of reasons um, why kids do 
do differently in school, perform differently in school or enjoy school more or less than other kids. Um, But unfortunately, you know, kids cannot choose what school they go to. So even though like my allergy to corn, um, they didn't choose the way that their brain works. They didn't choose their athletic or academic uh, ability um, or their um, their ability to, you know, be in the, the school play and be in drama or music or whatever it might be. Um, but unfortunately, they don't have the same level of choice that I have for going to my the grocery store that fits my needs better, regardless of which neighborhood I choose to live in, a lot of kids don't have that same ability to go to a school that better fits their needs um, because it's highly, highly dependent on where they live, which is why, you know, when at the outset, when I talked about how there's real estate listings that say this is in a fabulous school district, that really matters because you really can't choose where you go to school beyond that in, in many places in Canada. Um, so it's, um, I think that that is kind of a, it's a, it's a simplistic argument. It's something that is, is brought up in the context of school choice discussions quite a bit, the grocery store example. So it's, it's not something that I have come up with myself, but it is sort of a question, I think, to get people thinking about why can we choose our grocery stores, but we cannot choose our schools in the same way. We choose so many things in our life, um, but we can't choose our schools. And and why is that the case? So to kind of get back to the the question that you actually asked, I think we have to um, start by asking the question of, of why school choice matters and, and then, you know, can get into um, what a market system for schools would look like. Right. And, and you did mention this, but I, I want to just drill into it further and dwell on it because I think it's a very important point that it's not just about the sort of where question as well. And, and you did highlight this, right? It's not just about, you know, for instance, uh, metaphorically, I want to shop there or shop here, or then more specifically, I want my child to literally go to this school on First Street or go to this school on 54th Street. It's more also about given that choice, we're also expecting that more school choice would have a huge range of different types of learning approaches and educational philosophies that fit the child better as well. Right, exactly. So think again, about just to go back to the grocery stores, if let's say that you want to choose a grocery store that has um, local products, you know, you don't want to choose um, a place that's going to have whatever bananas from Mexico or whatever it might be. Um, you want to choose um, a, a place that has local meat, local strawberries, local this and that and that. And so that's where you go because that fits your preferences. And and at that store, you might also be able to offer feedback to the owner. Like, you know, you know, I saw that you're carrying um, this avocado from, from Mexico. Um, I really would prefer if you carried more uh, local products. That's why I come here. And then the, the shop owner might say, well, you are a really good customer. We really value your feedback. Um, we're going to do more to cater toward your specific preferences to keep you happy um, because that matters to us uh, as the business owner to be, you know, responsive to your needs. Um, the same thing, you know, in any market system, um, you know, there's, there's no reason that that can't apply to schools. Different communities across Canada, Canada is a huge 
place. A province like Ontario is a huge place geographically. There are um, vast differences from place to place. And um, there's really no reason why we shouldn't have schools that are more flexible and more responsive to the needs of their local communities, but also to the needs of individual students. And what you would have in this market system is schools that then would try to fill voids in the market, try to meet needs that maybe perhaps are more niche. Um, They're certainly not one size fits all in the way that uh, government public schools can tend to be. So if your child has very specific learning needs, whether it's anything from, you know, they just really, they're, they're not driven and wanting to get up in the morning to attend school because of math, they really love the arts, they love performing arts, or they love visual arts. Well, why couldn't the school reflect that and focus strongly on an arts curriculum, of course, having the basics like math, um, but offer that so then children who want to attend that kind of a school and are going to be Um, you know, just have their flame lit um, for education um, by attending a school like that, um, why wouldn't that be the case? Or, you know, on something uh, like, for example, you know, students with exceptional behavioral needs or learning needs, um, if they have, you know, a a severe form of uh, autism spectrum disorder, why maybe they need a one-on-one education and that's going to be the only way that they flourish. Well, if there's that void in the market, uh, then somebody will step in to fill it. That's the whole idea of, of the marketplace. And schools will then be driven just like grocery stores to become uh, innovative, to become you know creative and, and try and think of ways to attract new really customers, but really new families and students to attend their school by offering interesting new approaches that better fit the needs of whatever type of student it might be. And then families can have their needs met, you know, which is it's just so, so critical um, in a child's education. Think about the amount of time that a child spends in school from junior kindergarten or kindergarten all the way up to grade 12. There's so many formative years there. If we can really nurture a child's educational growth by putting them in a school that offers the best fit for their needs, you know, all the better for that child's development. Right. And I actually want to, on that note, I want to add like sort of a caveat to everything you're saying there, which is sort of like a question of scale, because of course, because of the public school system and and, uh, the government funded approach, which is so like, you know, and then we're going to discuss that further, but like people are so used to that idea of like the sort of like, you know, bricks and mortar, big institution where a bunch of children sort of get shipped off to and and outside. It it shouldn't go without saying, I guess that sort of, it seems, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but, but your idea of school choice and like an actual market for independent schools would also have room for like, you know, also an alternative would, for example, be those who want to homeschool their kids or also an alternative would be you know a, a community having a very small sort of um you know a set of resources set aside i don't know to like educate like you know 12 kids at once for the year or something like that like that's kind of what i'm picturing when you're really talking about a market approach not just sort of different big institutions like you know the, the children can be sort of shipped off to if you will Absolutely. I mean, we, you know, the whole kind of institutional schooling approach that we have now is not certainly not always been the way it hasn't even been the way for for all that long. We had that kind of one room schoolhouse model of a mixed age kids, um, uh, a much smaller group of kids. Um, who are kind of, there's a lot of mentorship involved, and perhaps just one teacher. Um, That was the model for uh, quite some time before we moved to this kind of more institutional, big, um, 
school model that we have now. Um, and, and that's not to say that there's not benefits to, um, to the school model that we have now. It's just, you know, the premise of school choice is that who, who am I to say what's best, you know, let leave that up to the parents to decide what's best um, for their child's unique scenario. And if that means homeschooling, um, learning at home because the child um, has exceptional needs or perhaps, perhaps just because that's what the family wants to do. And that's how children are, are they're, they're seeing that their children are learning better. Um, whatever the reason might be, um, a, a school choice environment would, would offer all sorts of different educational options and allow families to choose the schools um, that best fit them. So whether that's homeschooling, whether that's, as you say, you know, a very small um, community focused school, whether that is a, a much bigger school with, you know, lots of technology or, or whatever, whatever it might be that that, um, that that family prefers and that the children prefer. School choice policies seek to allow families to make that choice for themselves rather than having the default be to just go, you know, to their, their local government school. And, and, you know, one thing, so I, it comes to my mind because I have uh, small kids and so we are often involved in um, the, the whole childcare scene and, and all the different options that people have for childcare. So you can choose to stay home longer with your kids and, and wash them yourself, or you can choose to send them to your local home daycare where you might only have four kids attending, or you can choose to send them to a bigger, more institutional daycare center um, with a whole bunch of kids and a whole bunch of different ages, and they're all in different classrooms together. Um, and there's all sorts of different daycares available um, to, to parents. And, um, and I mean, we do have programs policy wise through the government, like the Canada child benefit, for example, or there's child care tax credits, whatever it might be that are meant to support the costs of childcare. And I'm, I'm using the term childcare very broadly, ranging from staying home with your own kids to sending them to a, a big institutional type daycare center. Um, but, but we have that kind of a system in place. And obviously there are, you know, I won't get into the changes that are happening in childcare policy in Canada. Uh, we are moving towards a bit more of a homogeneous system. Um, but in general, you know, we have that premise that that was sort of already existing in Canada for daycare, but we just don't have that same premise that we carry through um, to, to in K-12 education for some reason. So why should parents um, put so much thought and effort and, and care into deciding what's the best fit for childcare for their child when, you know, before age four or five, but then after age four or five, oh, we just default and send them all through the same system. You know, why were their needs so unique at this point, um, but aren't seen as unique past that age. The, the fact is that, you know, kids are not one size fits all. There's really no reason that schools should be one size fits all, much like daycare or anything else that we choose in our life. Right. That's a really good point. I didn't even think of it in that way, but it's so true. Like for all intents and purposes, you know, daycare and childcare choices totally exists to a, to a decent degree. So why doesn't it carry through that? That's an excellent point. And actually on that note, and I'm glad you sort of ended our, our main thrust here. And because before we go to break, I want to get one more point in that I think very well connects to your emphasis, which is at the end of the day, of course, it's about giving parents more choice and more autonomy in these choices from, from a more like practical political policy perspective, but still in a general sense, you know, 
anyone listening to this that you know might be with you as far as your um, general idea and sentiment as to why more school choice is needed might be skeptical at least as far as how much they withdraw the state and state support from schooling in general in this conversation so I I guess I want to do sort of like an if question for you so you'll see where I'm going with this so like if so many are used to the state not only funding schooling but also packaging that and controlling and regulating schooling that on the one hand. What I want to do for this question is separate the two, like funding on the one hand and regulation on the other, and ask you sort of an A and B question that is going to be tied to this main if question. So first one, if there is a role for the state uh, when it comes to education and supporting it, what does that look like as far as funding in your mind, if, if there is to be a role? How could that work with more of a, a school choice with, with let's say not a full school choice policy, but like at least an increased school choice for parents, what can the state still do as far as funding, for example? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, it's a really important point because we have to differentiate between government funded and government run. There is no reason why in Canada where, you know, I think that the, the general value exists. We, we generally in society see the value of every child having access to a high quality education. That's sort of the premise of public education. Um, and there's absolutely no reason why in a school choice environment that would not continue to be true or even more true because, you know, what is a high quality education um, that that really it differs from student to student. So government funding schools or, or education, because it could be homeschool, could be whatever, um, whatever parents want, uh, is very different from government, you know, operating education and providing and delivering education. Um, Government monopolies do not tend to um, produce the highest quality results. They don't tend to produce um, efficient or flexible systems in general. Um, So there's there's really no reason why we can't continue the, the concept and the practice of funding education through tax dollars in Canada um, but but just not having government to the extent that it does um, be the only provider of, of education. So to answer your question in, in terms of the funding, there are so many different models. Um, and, and really, by, by offering parents the choice as to where their education tax dollars that they're paying anyway are going to go, so what type of school uh, it would go to, um, it, it, it shouldn't. If, if public schools, if government public schools are offering a service that families you know, strongly value and want to continue attending, then there's no reason why um, these type of policies would take any kind of funding or students away from those schools. It's really just um, allowing families to be more flexible and choose the schools that they prefer. Um, So that can certainly include government public schools as part of that ecosystem. Um, But you can also have... um, a variety of different ways that, that you can have the funding work. So in Canada, what it tends to look like, and but without getting into the nitty gritty, is, is just that in the provinces that do have more school choice policies, the per student funding, reflective of what the, the per student funding is for public schools, government public schools that year, um, actually would be allotted to whatever school the parent chooses. So an independent school instead, um, in one province, it could go toward um, a charter school, which actually is a 
wholly government funded, um, but autonomously operated school that only exists in one province, but it is more common in in the United States and Europe. Um, So that's one model. There are other models um, that don't exist in Canada, but that, you know, we do see in in other areas like education savings accounts, for example. So you could literally just give uh, parents, uh, here's a bundle of, of money that needs to be spent on education. It's in an education savings account. Uh, you can use it to pay for whatever type of school you want. Perhaps you can even just reserve it, attend your, um, you know, if you have some extra money left over, save it for university, whatever it might be, give the parents that money directly and allow them to choose their school. Um, Or like I said, you could, like we have in Canada more so, um, just the government directly funnel that money toward the school that um, that family chooses just based on the enrollment records. Um, So so there's a few different models, but there's really, there's not much that exists in Canada. Um, But but the, the underlying premise, I guess is you can have government funded schools without having government run schools and the the whole concept of what a public school is um, perhaps deserves a rethink because everybody's a member of the public regardless of what kind of a school they go to so um, should the money be funding this one kind of monolithic government monopoly education system or should the money be funding students and in the choices that they want to make and that really is the the central question I guess of school choice right and I actually provide an excellent pivot point to the next part of that question I want to ask, which is that in your mind, if there isn't a role for government to actually run the school systems or public education, if you will, is there at all a role in your mind or could there be a role for the state to at all regulate or, for instance, supervise standards? You know, for instance, some people say the state should be involved in at the very least mandating that children get some form of education, but nothing beyond that, that sort of discussion. So all all that to say it, it is there any role in your mind for the state to quote unquote support education in the sense that it creates some sort of regulatory framework that doesn't actually have anything to do with running the whole thing? Yeah. So, you know, we, we do, for example, we've done polling at the the Fraser Institute on um, standardized testing. So provincial assessment programs that for the most part exist in every province. Um, they are on the decline in Canada. Um, but when we've polled parents, uh, a large majority of parents right across Canada in every region and speaking nationally, um, strongly prefer standardized testing. They value standardized testing. They want to know from an objective standpoint how their children are doing in schools, um, looking comparatively at their peers um, on that kind of fair level playing field that standardized testing um, provides. So in a system uh, where you're going to have more diversity in, in educational options, something like standardized testing, I think, provides a lot of value, uh, because especially because kids are not all going through the same um, educational system. They're, they're, they're being educated maybe in different ways, um, but it's a way to just determine whether or not they are uh, meeting their you know, the, the outcomes that are deemed important um, and, and by, I guess, by the state. Um, and, and you could use that, you know, government policymakers could look at other countries and look at what standards, you know, kids there are, are being held to and, and ensure that kids are being held to those same standards um, in, in each of the Canadian provinces. Um, so, so something like that, like a strong system of standardized testing, I think does provide some feedback to parents. It provides accountability and it does provide those kind of core standards. Um, you know, there, there's also the, um, 
there's there's no reason, especially if you do have a, a, a system of government public schools that you can't have a provincial curriculum um, that continues, that can provide a framework for independent schools. That's not to say that independent schools or homeschoolers need to use that curriculum because there are a lot of uh, families who choose to homeschool or go to an independent school because they, they want flexibility. They want different curricula that are better suited for their child for whatever number of reasons or for their family's um, uh, preferences. So, uh, but, but to have, you, you can't have that kind of overarching, you know, curriculum that, um, that the government sets out, those kinds of overarching standards that the government sets out. Um, one thing that, you know, we have noted in our research is that the provinces that do have more school choice um, and in Canada, that looks like more funding for independent schools do also tend to have more regulation of independent schools. Um, so just to give you an example, um, and this was not, this is not the case in every province, um, but it, so for, for COVID, for example, during the pandemic, there were some pretty strict, obviously, uh, health regulations put on schools. Um, and it tended to be the case that if there was funding for independent schools in that province, that they had to then follow the same rules that the government public schools did in with respect to COVID, you know, health and safety regulations. So that's not just related to um you know, educational things like teacher certification or the use of provincial curricula, um, which are regulations that are imposed on independent schools that receive funding uh, in, in many provinces in Canada. Um, but it can be other things such as, you know, whatever the COVID health policies might be. And so our research has shown that, you know, when we when we dive deep into the regulations, the, the provinces that do offer funding toward independent schools do tend to also um, have stricter regulations on those independent schools. And certainly that does not need to be the case. Um, there's, there's no reason that a provincial government needs to create policy in that way. But it is sort of a, a trend, I guess, to, to be aware of that that does tend to be the case, at least in the Canadian provinces that are doing it now. Um, but I guess to to um, to answer your question briefly as well, you know, you, you could look at things like do teachers need to be certified? Do provincial curricula need to be followed? Those are things that I guess provincial governments could decide, you know, do independent schools have to follow this? And, and one kind of policy mechanism um, that we see in, uh, in Alberta, for example, is there are tiers of funding. It's, it actually exists in, in several provinces, tiers of funding for independent schools, and it might be dependent on, on how much of the provincial regulation they choose to follow. Um, um, so you get more funding if you follow more of the provincial regulation. You, there's no reason you couldn't do that for homeschoolers as well to have those kinds of tiers of funding. There's a whole bunch of different ways you can you can structure these policies, um, I guess, toward governments and, and the public's comfort level with regulating schools. Right. No, I think that was an excellent way to wrap that up. But And actually, we are definitely at the point where we need to take a break. So we're going to do that right now. So everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking, speaking with Paige McPherson today. Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. As always, feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Joe Aragona, Janet Bufton, and Yakov Mikhailovich. 
Remember to link us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Paige McPherson today. So, Paige, I think the first half was great. I mean, we, we generally talked about uh, what school choice is and what a market for more uh, choice could look like and how that could run. We also talked a bit about if there is a role for the state, what could that look like? Of course, we're not saying we should do all that. But again, that, that was sort of me pushing on the sort of if side. Um I want to jump into more Canada-specific discussion here, but before we do that, I just had one question that I want to use sort of, if you will, to round off everything we talked about in the first half. Now, often people say when they hear the kinds of plans that you lay out, even if they do hear um, about the state still potentially having a role, um, for a variety of reasons, including, I think, because people are just so used to what the public school system currently looks like, people's immediate reaction is an idea that the types of arrangements and the approach that you're talking about might only go to benefit, you know, people like rich elites. And I think that's because of the perception they have of the current public school system versus current types of private schools that exist. And like, I think some people sort of tend to flippantly dismiss these objections on the one hand, or they just like read too much into them and like actually agree with them. So there's kind of extremes. But before we move forward, I kind of just wanted to hear what your uh, thoughts are on that idea. If someone was to come to you and say, this all sounds great, but what about the fear that the best schools are only going to go to the people that, you know, maybe they get a voucher from the province or whatever, but, you know, they can always afford more and so on and so forth. Just the idea that opening up a market would create great disparities in the quality of schooling um, that children can receive. So I think um, it's a very, very important question. And it is a this central reason why I care about this topic, because a former colleague of mine once said to me, you know, he grew up very poor. And he once said to me, um, you know, I grew up in a trailer park, and I didn't have any choice of where I went to school, rich kids will always have school choice, but poor kids like me have none. That statement that he made to me, um, was quite foundational. It, it, it really just turned me on to this topic in general, actually. Um, and it's because it's true. Um, the, the wealthy families that attend truly elite private schools do not need a voucher or any kind of subsidy from the government to attend those um, so-called elite private schools. They just don't. That's, that's, that's not who these policies are for. Wealthy families will always be able to choose their schools. Um, and, and they do. So it's, it's other families, the middle class families, the lower income families, um, you know, I think probably a growing number of families, given the cost of living increasing in Canada so dramatically, who are not going to be able to make these same choices. So that's that's the system that exists when you have no school choice policies. Kids who are lower income or middle class go to their local government public school. They have no other choice to do anything else. Kids who come from wealthy, truly privileged families have the choice to go elsewhere, and they often do. Um, The other thing that I think is important to note, and getting back to something that we talked about earlier, is that when you're looking at those real estate listings and you see that a home happens to um, be in a fabulous school district, um, that home is going to cost more in a province where you have those catchment area restrictions where kids cannot move freely from school catchment area to school catchment area. Um, that is really 
going to matter where their home is located because if it's located in a so-called fabulous school district with these great schools and you have a lot of wealthier families living in this neighborhood, families who are not working three jobs, you know, single mom to, to put food on the table and simply do not have time to sometimes help their kids with their homework, certainly do not have time to be um, consistently corresponding with a teacher because of whatever struggles their kids are having at school um, versus families who are wealthier and, um, and do, they, they, they can afford um, to, to be more demanding with their time, with their energy. Um, And so you might have as a result, higher standards at those schools, even though they're all government public schools, um, you still see, uh, terms used in in real estate listings as an example of, oh, it's in this fabulous school district, this school is really fabulous, whatever it might be. Um, And and that is often the reason why. So the idea that, you know, in this monolithic government monopoly on, uh, on government public schools, that we don't have differentiation based on income um, in terms of the schools that people prefer to send their kids to, that's false. That's, that's, we do have that. And the idea that um, we'll only, you know, this is only going to benefit wealthy families because wealthy families are going to attend these, um, these elite sort of private schools. Um, Well, that, that happens regardless of whether we have school choice policies or not. Really what school choice policies um, enable is the empowerment of families who don't have the financial flexibility to make these kinds of choices otherwise. Um, And it, it brings those families and those kids into a more diverse ecosystem of different types of schools that better fit their needs. And um, I would contend that it actually helps solve the problem of only the so-called elite having school choice and everybody else not. Right. Absolutely. And for the last sort of main swing of our conversation here, I will dive now into more Canada-specific discussions so we can tour sort of different jurisdictions and what's happening with that. I think it's important to start with the basics again here because many Canadians and especially those who don't have children even are often unfamiliar with how taxing and spending in jurisdiction works in education. So before I actually go province by province and sort of get your insight on what's going on uh, with a school choice in each area of the country, I actually wanted you to sort of clarify what level what what each level of government actually does when it comes to schooling for those that might be unfamiliar like you know we do have the federal government and provincial governments that are you know involved in in most things but but with education i know it works a very specific way so could you kind of just tell us what what the feds are doing and what the provincial governments are doing when it comes to regulating or funding education and so on yeah so um yeah it's a good sort of foundational question there's no canadian education system although there's similarities from province to province when it comes to um you know, educational standards um, and uh, and curricula. It's it's the the provincial governments that determine that that control education. So so education is a provincial jurisdiction in Canada. So when it comes to things uh, like what school boards look like, and, and school boards are sort of another more local level of, of quasi-government um, that, that make decisions in, in, with respect to schools in, in different provinces. Um, sometimes they're elected in, in the province where I live in Nova Scotia. We do not have elected school boards anymore. Um, you just have sort of one kind of appointed board of people um, who oversee education. Um, and, but then you have, you know, sort of 
administrators within um, provincial education departments making a lot of the decisions about curriculum, about um, teacher certification, um, about funding. Certainly provincial governments determine funding. Now, um, there are some of that funding does come funneled through the federal government, but the actual decision making um, with respect to curriculum or, or even, you know, um, provincial assessments like standardized tests, stuff like that is done through provincial governments in Canada. Great. And I'm glad we did establish that each province ultimately varies because we'd be here talking all day and forever if we actually thought that we were going to be able to each province, each school board, each specific nuance of how they regulate schooling. So we're we're not going to get into that. But with that sort of basic foundation in the background of generally how schooling works across Canada and how it's administrated and so on, I thought it would be fun to tour the, the sort of state of school choice specifically across the country and in each province and sort of round up everything we've been talking on that, uh, what the you know the pros and cons are in each province and so on and so forth. So I thought we'd, we'd actually you know start on the East Coast just so we can get start with flavors over there and see what's going on as far as school choice is concerned. So um, in... in uh, and then you could feel free to, if there's similarities, of course, because you're the expert, you can group provinces together if you want, but I'm just going to throw the prompts out there. I wanted to start with Newfoundland and Labrador. Not sure if we should be speaking about them individually or sort of the way people often do, which is grouping those guys, those provinces out there together. But I wanted to start with Newfoundland and Labrador and see where the conversation goes as far as what their outlook on school choice is right now. Sure. So um, it's actually, um, although, you know, I live in Nova Scotia and I'm very happy to talk about the different policies from the different maritime provinces and the whole of Atlantic Canada, um, you know, from Newfoundland, PEI, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, there are policy differences, of course, which I agree with you. They often get lumped together in other policy areas. Um, but ironically, in the area of school choice, there's not a lot of difference um, from one Atlantic province to the other. Um, so I actually do think it is, we can probably lump all of Atlantic Canada together. Together, uh, when it comes to this um, this topic, which is to say that there's pretty much no school choice policies uh, in Atlantic Canada, with one small exception. Um, so I think that you know it's worthwhile to note that across Canada there are um, francophone schools and there are um, anglophone schools, and and so that's going to be an option for parents. Um, in every province, oftentimes with, um, you know, you needing to have, uh, uh, for example, where I live in Nova Scotia, uh, you, you need to have some French Canadian ancestry in order to attend the Francophone school. So it's not an option that's open to every student. My kids cannot attend the Francophone school. Um, but it is a government-funded, government-run school um, that exists sort of separately from the Anglophone schools. Um, within every Canadian province, there's also French immersion programs that exist. Um, and of course, you know, Quebec is going to be a little bit different than the other provinces on these, these language issues, um, sort of just flipped. Uh, it's in the reverse. Um, but there are... Um, there, there is that level of choice that exists in every province, including in Atlantic Canada, where there are French schools, there are English schools, they're government funded. Not everybody can necessarily attend both of those types of schools, um, but they're both government funded and government run, um, but they kind of fall under the umbrella of government public schools. Now, aside from that, in Atlantic Canada, you pretty much have no choice. Um, so you go to your local government public school, um, and the one small exception to that 
is in Nova Scotia, there's a program called the Tuition Support Program, which is only for severely learning disabled kids. There's um, a small number of schools in the province um, that do cater toward this. And um, it's essentially a voucher program only for severely learning disabled kids to attend one of these schools. They don't exist in every part of the province, um, but they are in the uh, more populated areas of the province generally speaking. Um, and, and so that is a bit of a voucher system that exists for parents to have some choice only if you have a severely learning disabled kid. Um, and outside of that, in terms of the financial policies, um, there's pretty much none in Atlantic Canada. So it's a very limited for our friends out there in Atlantic Canada. And and let the record show to our East Coast listeners, I, we, I did uh, prompt to break it up. But as uh, Paige said, there isn't much of a difference anyway. So we just lumped everyone into Atlantic Canada, but what we did try together. Um, yeah. So, so um, uh, for, let's move on to Quebec then. What's the state of the union there as far as school choice outlook is concerned? Yeah, so Quebec, um, Quebec's an interesting case. The school system in general looks a little bit different than, than other Canadian provinces that tend to look more similarly, but there is funding um, for uh, for independent schools in Quebec um, for one tier of independent schools. So as I mentioned before, uh, provinces that do fund independent schools have different tiers of funding, typically based on regulation. Um, and in Quebec, one of the tiers of independent schools is funded at about 60%. So 60% would be, um, it's not just, okay, because so independent schools tuition varies greatly, right? You've got on one side of things, the, the so-called, you know, truly elite private schools. Um, and that's a very, very small number of the independent schools in Canada um, actually are those kind of elite private schools. So that's, you know, what we were talking about before. I just think it's worth noting that it's quite a it's quite a myth. Um, when we did an analysis uh, of this in 2016, we found that only 4.7 percent of the independent schools across Canada were elite schools. Um, so I, I do think that that is um, is worth noting, um, just to sort of dismantle that myth of, of only the elite will will use these types of, of schools. Um, but the reason I bring that up is because tuition obviously varies greatly from independent school to independent school. So you might say, oh, 60 percent. Well, 60 percent of tuition at this kind of elite you know, boarding private school is going to be a heck of a lot more than going to my local Christian school. Um, but what it is, is it's 60% of the per student funding that's allocated to students who attend government public schools. That is then allocated to the independent school um, where the child attends that school, um, wherever the families choose. And so it's kind of a, it's a bit of a voucher system in that way that exists in Quebec. And as I mentioned, there's two tiers. One is funded at about um, 60%. Um, I also think it's worth noting as well, something interesting about Quebec, that they, relatively speaking in Canada, have a pretty high level of independent school attendance um, relative to, uh, to other provinces. Certainly they used to have the highest when we did an analysis of this uh, in 2006-07. They did um, have 11% of their students' attending independent schools, uh, that has dropped to 9.8% of students in Quebec attending independent schools. Um, but that is still um, quite a bit higher than, than most of the provinces, the second highest in Canada. So quite a, num- a, a large um, proportion, relatively speaking, of students attend independent schools in Quebec. Right. And, and how about Ontario? What's it look like there? 
Ontario, much like Atlantic Canada, has uh, pretty much diddly squat when it comes to uh, educational choice. And Ontario is a very interesting case here because it was a a very contentious uh, election issue in, I believe it was 2007, um, when it was this this issue was brought up and it was kind of central to the election debate at that time. Um, It was sort of characterized as a very... um, religiously focused policy, even though um, the funding of of independent schools, of course, could apply to a whole bunch of different types of schools, religious and non-religious, but it became quite controversial in that election. And it's sort of been seen as this political hot potato uh, in Ontario since then, Um, even though the province um, was kind of, um, there was a tax credit system in place and and kind of was inching closer towards having greater school choice policies at that time. but currently, there's there's pretty much nothing. So, I mean, you do have um, Catholic schools that are funded by the government um, and, and operated by an arm of government um, in Ontario. Um, so you do have um, choices in, in, in with that because you've got English Catholic schools and French Catholic schools. Um, and then you've got English government public schools and French government public schools, all of which are kind of under the whole government public school umbrella. Um, and there's not a ton of difference really between the Catholic schools and the, the public schools um, in Ontario. Um, but there are kind of choices in every or, or at least most neighborhoods for kids to attend those different types of schools. Um, but there is absolutely no funding for, for kids to attend um independent school um, in Ontario. There's no funding for homeschooling. So, and of course, it's, it's kind of sad because the real estate prices in so much of Ontario, specifically the GTA, and I, I know now like the Ottawa area as well, are really, really high. Um, and so what you have are families that, again, are not even going to be able to afford to go into um, their chosen school district because the real estate prices are so prohibitive. Um, so you really have very little school choice for students in Ontario. Mm. And moving on uh, to our friends in the, in the middle of the country. And again, like I'm just doing this because, you know, we can't speak about Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and perhaps Alberta together, or perhaps just Manitoba and Saskatchewan together, though I'm not sure if they are similar, very different. So I'll prompt you first on Manitoba, but then again, you can let me know if, if there's a way to sort of take care of a couple of these things in, in a big swing, or if we should go individually as, as we go further west. Yeah, absolutely. So we can talk about Manitoba and Saskatchewan. There are there are, are a little bit, there's a little bit of a difference, excuse me. So in Manitoba, there are two tiers of independent schools similar to Quebec. Um, one tier, again, based on regulation, is, is funded at about 50% of that per student cost of government public schools in the province. Um, Saskatchewan, there's four tiers of independent schools designated by the province. So three of the tiers are funded. Um, So it's a little more complicated, um, but the funding does go up higher. So the funding ranges for those tiers from 50% of that per student cost up to 80%. Um, And one of the tiers, um, which is historical high schools in Saskatchewan is unique to that province, um, actually gets some funding for capital expenses, which does not tend to be the case for independent school funding in uh, in Canada or charter school funding, which we'll get into in a second uh, in Alberta. 
Um, the, the capital expenses are typically paid for by the independent schools themselves. It's the operational expenses that are paid for um, from that per student subsidy that they receive from the province. Um, that so, so that's capital. When I say capital, I just mean the cost of the building and their facilities and stuff like that, which typically are covered by the independent schools themselves. Uh, also, interestingly, in Saskatchewan, there is some level of funding not a lot, but there's a little bit of funding um, afforded to homeschooling families as well. And that is something that exists only in Saskatchewan, Alberta, and BC actually offer uh, funding to, to homeschooling families. Like I said, not a lot of funding, but there is some funding available there. Right. And then, as you mentioned, we'll, we'll, we left them to the side. We didn't lump them in. But if we move on to Alberta, what's going on there? So Alberta... Similar to Saskatchewan, they have four tiers of independent schools that are designated by the province. Um, two of these tiers are funded. Um, <clears throat> at a, uh, so it's 60% and 70% of that per student funding um, in uh, in Alberta of the, the government public schools. Um, so there's also, I should mention as well, uh, in Alberta and in Saskatchewan, there's Catholic schools similar to Ontario. Um, and so that provides kind of another layer of choice, but under that kind of government public school umbrella. Um, and Alberta has um, what are called charter schools. And this is a very, I, I did mention this briefly earlier on, but it's a very interesting um, educational model within Canada um, because it doesn't exist in any other province, even though they're quite common in uh, in Europe, in Sweden, for example, um, for-profit charter schools are an extremely common way to educate students, um, still funded by the government, um, but these independently operated autonomous schools um, are, are really common. So in Alberta, Certainly not super common. There are not uh, a large number of charter schools in the province because for quite some time, actually until just a few years ago, there was a cap on the number of charter schools that could exist in the province. But in essence, it's an autonomous, so outside of government um, operation and running of the school and in the establishment of the school that is done autonomously by a society or a community group or whatever kind of an organization wants to start up a school um, but they are funded for operation so um, there's a there's a little bit of exception to this but typically not for capital expenses um, just for operational expenses um, the charter schools are funded by the government in Alberta parents pay no tuition to send their kids to these schools even though they are autonomous um, they are more regulated than independent schools are in terms of um, what they have to follow you know whatever government regulations are, are set out by the provincial government there but they are autonomous and the reason that they're called charter schools is because they operate um, on a charter, which uh, is a unique reason for operating. So essentially, they have to offer something that their local government public school does not offer. Um, and in doing so, they um, they offer it something, something different and they offer a unique service. So there's all sorts of different charter schools in, in Alberta. There are schools that focus on... Um, 
English second language students. There's a, there's one charter school like that. There's a charter school that is like a rural stewardship charter school that focuses on rural life and and the skills that you need for rural life that operates in obviously a rural area. Uh, There's an indigenous charter school that offers, um, you know, an indigenous centric um, method of education to the students there. Again, obviously in in a heavily indigenous area. Um, There are STEM, there's a STEM charter school that opened up recently. There's a classical education charter school that's opening up um, now. Uh, There's, there's, um, a musical focus, music focused charter school. Um, there's there's just a whole range of different types of charter schools that exist uh, in, in Alberta. And it's unique because the parents, again, they pay no tuition to attend these schools, um, but they but they have that option. And the wait lists tend to be very, very long for these charter schools um, in Alberta, which is also uh, quite interesting. Um, so Alberta is the only province that offers charter schools in Canada, but it does also offer a level of funding um, to independent schools and homeschooling families as well. And to round off our tour of the provinces specifically, we also have British Columbia. Yeah. Yeah. So BC, similar to Alberta, there's four tiers of independent school. Two tiers are funded at either 50% um, or 35% of the annual per student operational costs of government public schools. So um, they also offer some funding to, to homeschooling students. And interestingly, like I, I noted in Quebec, BC actually has a high level um, of, uh, of total enrollment uh, in independent schools. 13.1% of students in BC actually attend independent schools, which is quite a bit higher um, than other provinces. Just to contrast that with um, on the other side of the country, Newfoundland and Labrador, where we started, only 1.6% of students are educated in independent schools. So quite a significant difference um, from province to province. And BC's enrollment in independent in schools is actually quite high. And the uh, the keen listener will have noted that we will not be today, and then we haven't touched on so far the uh, the territories, our friends in the Yukon, Northwest Territories, and Nunavut. And, you know, Paige, you and I, before we even started recording today, actually touched on this point. We, we won't be able to explore the territories today, but can you just sort of give us a high level as to why that's a little more nuanced and different and sort of requires a different set of thinking and details as the territories operate a little differently when it comes to education, right? Yeah, there's a little, there's some differences. There's some similarities. The territories um, do use other uh, provincial um, testing regimes, so they don't have their own independent testing regimes. They'll rely on those um, from from different provinces as well. There's high levels of uh, Indigenous students uh, in the territory, so you do have um, those uh, schools on First Nations, which are... um, designated differently and they, they operate a little bit differently um, than the uh, the government public schools that we're talking about today. So it is, um, it just tends to be a different kettle of fish um, when you're looking at the territories, even though in some areas there are some similarities. Um, but um, for, for our purposes today, I think looking at the provinces can give that kind of more specific nitty gritty overview of school choice policies. Right. Not an un- unimportant story in the territories, but a slightly different one. So ra- rounding this whole section of the conversation, off then I'm going to sort of I guess just honestly give you an open prompt I mean is there how would you sort of give the report card for the story of the provinces you know who, who which ones are the worst which ones are the best who would you give a gold star to who would you say we should pay more attention to what should other provinces emulate any way you want to round up our tour I'm going to give you the floor to do that and just say well, what what do you think this report card looks like at the end of the day 
Well, similarly to, you know, when it comes to government school catchment areas, where you live mattering so much, um, there really is uh, an inherent kind of injustice in that for kids. Um, it, it, you know, they where they live so strongly dictates where they can go to school in so many places in Canada. Um, and that is not only true when it comes to the catchment areas for government public schools, but it's also true when it comes to the level of school choice policy that exists. So certainly the province with the most, um, I guess, diverse uh, landscape of school choice policies is Alberta because of that charter school offering and because they do offer funding to independent schools and homeschooling. Um, But the reality is that 50% of the provinces in Canada offer some school choice to families, meaning that 50% of um, the provincial populations of kids in Canada have more options than the other 50% of the country does. Ontario, you know, the the biggest province population-wise, does not offer really any educational choice policies to uh, kids in Ontario. And, And of course, in Atlantic Canada, where I live as well, you know, basically nothing. Your local government public school, unless you have the means, um, which which in, in many, many cases uh, in Canada means making tremendous financial sacrifices for families, um, because, you know, our, our research also shows, I'll just note that, um, you know, as we were talking about some of the myths of independent schools, uh, that only rich kids attend independent schools, you know, we have research showing that they actually the income differences between families that attend independent schools and families that attend uh, government public schools are, are not big. Um, so that's, that's really not accurate. There's a lot of families that are actually making quite tremendous financial sacrifices in order to do this. But of course, there's so many other families that simply cannot. And, uh, and there's, there's an unfairness in that. So, um, so in terms of best practices, we can look right within our own country if provinces like Ontario and Atlantic Canada uh, want to emulate um, you know, what it looks like in Saskatchewan, BC, Quebec, Alberta, uh, Manitoba, to, to, to structure their, their educational choice policies in that way. There are other policy mechanisms through which they can do so, um, other ways that they can do voucher systems, they can do education savings accounts for families. You can even, like Australia, for example, has specifically a voucher system targeted toward low-income uh, kids. Um, and There's no reason that a Canadian province couldn't get creative and say, okay, we want our low income kids to be able to attend uh, independent schools. Let's give them the option by specifically designating a voucher system uh, tailored to to lower income families. There's so many ways that if provinces wanted to get creative with this, that they could do that. Um, But ultimately, I, I think that, you know, maybe just a good point to end on is that Schools tend to be one size fits all when it's within the government public system. Students are not one size fits all. Every kid is different when it comes to their learning needs, their behavioral needs, just their interests. Um, Families are not one size fits all. Families are all different and they all prefer different things. Um, So, you know, everybody pays taxes and whether you prefer your child to attend, um, a special needs school that caters towards their special needs, a forest school so they can be outside all day learning that way, um, a Montessori or a Waldorf school, um, again, like an indigenous focused school or a rural focused school, whatever you want for your child um, so that they feel 
stimulated by their educational experience, um, there's really no reason that governments should be so rigid and and so, um, you know, rejecting of policies that would make that a reality for kids right across the country. So hopefully, if there's any government policies that makers out there listening, um, educational diversity is a good thing. Um, and, uh, and there are certainly lots of policy mechanisms available uh, for governments that want to embrace it. Mm-hmm. And moving away from the specific Canada and policy discussion, I am going to move us into our formal wrap up for the conversation because we've gone a little ways over time here that we've allotted for our conversation today. So thank you for being a uh, pretty generous with that. And I want to bring us to the formal wrap up so um, we can bring the conversation full full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question uh, page in each episode. I want to make sure that the guest has the opportunity to have the last word and and really wrap everything up. So let me uh, officially and formally ask you, what do you hope are ultimately the main takeaways for someone listening to here on what school choice looks like or could look like? In, In other words, if you wanted someone to leave Uh, our conversation today, listen to everything and only take away one, two, or just a few takeaways, if anything, what would you want them to take away? Um, I would want them to take away that government funded schools can exist without um, exclusively funding government operated schools uh, and tax dollars really are intended, you know, through education uh, departments to fund students. They're not intended to fund one type of, of government system. And so if we can uh, focus on policies that do just that, um, that, that put that funding towards students and be flexible and responsive to student needs, community needs, reflecting the diversity of, um, our population in Canada and our in our kids. Um, those are the types of policies that ultimately are going to offer um, more educational freedom, more educational choice for families, um, and, and allow students to just find the schools that are the best fit for them um, when it comes to their unique learning needs. Great. I think that's, a, that's an excellent place to leave it. So Paige McPherson, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. As the school year starts for many young folks and the school year routine starts for many families, especially in the United States and Canada around this time, uh, many might find themselves actually satisfied with the school choices, limited as they may be, that are available to them. In many jurisdictions, uh, what choice, if any, which is a separate conversation, that uh, families have to send their children to uh, is often limited. It's regulated by uh, either the one level of government that affects their area, which also uh, has a school board at play, and so on and so forth. But again, some people might actually be very satisfied with what's offered to them. Uh, Others, not so much. In fact, many in the last few years, if you Google search and check out different articles and murmurings about this, either mainstream media or otherwise have been voicing dissatisfaction with the limited range of choices that they have in their area as far as schools for their children, or more broadly, they voice dissatisfaction with the overall school system, whether it be from the perspective of what the curriculum is or anything else that pertains to the structure of their children's education. Uh, Nevertheless, uh, the question really does become, should there be more options Uh, for schooling available to families and young people? And if there are to be more options, what would that look like? 
And again, I think this episode is quite timely to air again as a special episode, especially since we find ourselves in September. But I don't think that this is going to be a problem and a discussion that's going to go away anytime soon. Nor will we see families and children, most importantly, uh, ever even near 100% satisfied with what is currently being offered. So whether you are a family that, or part of a family, I should say, that is currently dealing with the beginning of a school year and directly having certain thoughts about the school system and how it works, or you're just indirectly interested in this topic, again, I think the timing is very good to think again about what it could and what it would mean to be more free to choose what schooling would look like for yourself even, as you get into perhaps from a wider and different set of schooling options. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Seguin. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.